One path, one choice, we win, or everyone dies. This is There and or Back Again, a special series by my brother, my captain, my podcast. Normally, our adventures have us journeying across Middle Earth, but here we jump into hyperspace to a galaxy far, far away. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as JRR Tweeting. Today's episode is Daughters of Ferrix, the penultimate episode of Andor's first season. Our spoiler warning is this. We will be spoiling everything that has aired thus far in Andor and any knowledge we may have of the Star Wars universe to date. Between the two of us, we've consumed a lot of Star Wars books, cartoons, comics, and games, so stuff will come out. I'm used to television ending on cliffhangers, but rarely does an episode open with one. A literal one, (laughs) as Cass and Melshi hang onto the sides of a canyon to avoid a tie reaper. The boys then try to commandeer a vintage quad jumper, but the local aliens have apparently collabed with Peter Parker as a huge load of webbing ensnares the escaped prisoners. The aliens toy with turning them in for their bounty, but ultimately, the pains the Empire has inflicted on them and their home planet of Narkina 5 matters more. They shuttle Cass and Malshi back to Niamos, where Cass's stash and bad news await them. That bad news, sadly, is the passing of Mama Andor, Marva. Brasso and the daughters of Ferrix are left to clean up her home and take care of B, or B2 Emo, who's hesitant to move on. Brasso promises to stay with the droid one night, but after that they have to prepare for Marva's funeral rites. Bricking, as it's called, her remains cremated and made into brick the walls that give Ferrix its strength. The funeral has drawn the attention of Deidre Mero, who looks to possibly spring a trap if Cassian shows up, as well as Cyril Karn, who hopes to get another shot at his white whale. (laughs) The funeral is something Bix Kaleen would likely be a part of if she wasn't still being held by Imperial personnel. They want her to identify Anto Krieger as this Axis figure, and they'll call in Dr. Gorst if they aren't happy with Bix's response. Also in pursuit of access is Vel, who's had word of Marva's passing from Cinta. She confronts Clea at Luthen's shop front and says this might be the perfect opportunity to wrangle Cashin, to whatever end. Vel stops by her cousin's condo as well, though Mon Mothma is doing less than stellar right now. Her daughter Leda has fallen in with the local youth church group, <laughs> reciting a chant that seems to extol the virtues of child brides. Kids these days, <laughs> filling their heads with whatever is trending on TikTok. Which, to Leda's defense, she is neurodivergent and a minor. <laughs> Mon lets Vel in on her ongoing financial troubles, and the money she's been supplying Axis is bound to come up in the next Imperial audit. Speaking of Axis, Luthen's off visiting Saw on Sagra Milo, as the two disparate leaders try to untangle the eminently failing Krieger plot. Despite Saw's hesitation, they seem to agree it's best to give up Krieger to maintain Luthen's inside source. Let's call it war, Saw says, as another 30 dead, plus Krieger, is likely to be added to the body count. And well, if you don't want to call that war, the Starfighter sequence that follows should qualify. Luthen's Fondor Hallcraft is stopped by an Imperial Cantwell-class arrestor cruiser, tricked out with a giant tractor beam satellite dish on its bow. Luthen stalls for as long as he can before blowing the tractor beam and turning around into attack formation. 
He buzzes the tower before taking out a squadron of TIE fighters with a spin and lateral laser blast before jumping off into hyperspace. Not sure his destination, but given everything else we saw this episode, all signs are pointing to Ferex for most of our cast. We'll see you for the finale at Rick's Road. So I think uh, I think this is a good thing that we are officially a Lord of the Rings podcast because everything with, are we? Uh, well, we were at one point. <laughs> fuck knows anymore. Um, but I feel like I feel like the first kind of cash and Melshi bits felt very Sam and Frodo and Mordor. Like, oh god, they're climbing up the stairs of Gareth Ungle. Oh god, they're getting spunked on by like something that looks like a spider. Um, and there's not really anything of any intellectual worth or merit to this. But it is kind of nice to me. Actually, you know what there is? Uh, it is me getting to dunk on something that I hate uh, massively. It's amazing that this feels more Lord of the Rings to me than the literal Lord of the Rings branded TV show. And how phenomenal is that? That um, spooky spiders. Um, and also like Shadow of Wardor, big titty spooky spider alien things showed up in this. Isn't Star Wars the best? <laughs> Yeah, that's funny. Actually, this show surpassed uh, the Rings of Power for me the minute they said the line, the axe forgets, but the tree remembers. Mm. Like, that felt more Tolkien-y than anything that was in the Tolkien show, supposedly. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, no, I think very much so. I was thinking especially of uh, Sam and Frodo climbing in the Emin Wheel mm -hmm. as well, um, especially the kind of general, like, color-sucked-out palette that is uh, Narkina 5 here. And they do have close-ups on their bare feet, which just makes all that cliffhanging all the more painful when you realize that they don't even have, like, hiking boots on. Yeah. Um, so they're enduring all these jagged, jagged rocks and cracks with their... Uh, very soft bottoms of their feet. Um, it, it is really great. And they're just, they're holding on. It's almost like uh, Frodo holding on in the cracks of doom at the end where Sam has to pull him up. It's not quite that, but this is like a very encouraging scene or just a very interesting scene to me because at first they're hanging on and Cass is saying they're leaving. And the first time he says that, Melshi's like, don't say that again. Like he's just like kind of getting annoyed of mm -hmm. it. But then as soon as uh, like the tie Reaper, uh, the tie Reaper, which is a thing I barely knew existed, <laughs> uh, uh, flies past and it looks like they're actually clear to get up. Uh, Melshi actually has Cass say they're leaving again to him just to kind of like reassure him as they climb back up. Yep. Yep. And I think the thing that I really like about this is that it, it establishes such a clear dynamic and we don't have to like watch some fucking quote unquote arc where they go from like people who hate each other to people who are suddenly best friends for it to feel like this is a relationship that has evolved in some way. Um, and I also quite like it because it, it ties in quite tightly to just a really otherwise stupid and and not stupid but otherwise kind of menial and and unnecessary line in Rogue One which is like Cashin getting on the comms uh when they uh when he and Jin are in the the archive building in and Scarif and he's like Melshi talk to me um and it's such like a little stupid little way of expanding it where they're like literally talking each other through it um but it is a kind of nice way of being like we have literally crumbs not even crumbs about this character this Melshi character and like how can we expand it well we can play on this dynamic of talking to people and 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 kind of turning it into that um which is i also think kind of funny in some ways because uh, tony gilroy was like the reason we got uh the duncan pow the guy who plays melshi the reason we got him back is because he had great vibes on set and was fun to hang out with and i'm like yeah okay if he's got great vibes then like just do it as he's a guy with great vibes that's his character now <laughs> 
Yeah, no, it was really great. Uh, do you want to just talk about all the Cash Melshi stuff here? Because speaking of great vibes, he has like one of the best looks I've ever seen in a Star Wars with his printed shirt <laughs> yes. and Capri's at the end. On the <laughs> And yeah, let's do it. Because I think this episode kind of opens up with us learning about what happens to Marva. Like the very literal second scene is them cleaning up Marva's place. But the episode actually ends with... Cass finding out about it. He tries to call his friend Zan over at Zanwan Freighting in <laughs> Barracks, um, and he gets the news. And he's basically on a space phone booth. Um, I forget what, a uh, payphone. Pay that's what the word I was looking for. <laughs> um, and he, uh, Diego Luna gives this incredible performance as he's learning the news and kind of like dissociating for a second mm-hmm. um, before he moves on to his very dapper friend, Melshi, <laughs> um, to tell him that ev- everything's actually okay. Um, and then they decide what they need to do next. Yeah. I, so I, this scene, right, I was really kind of nervous when I, when because you can kind of see at the start of this scene, uh, this kind of ending scene, where it's going. And, and, and to be honest, this was the first time in the show where I started to feel like a little bit nervous about like where the referentiality and where it's like relationship to Star Wars was going to go. Um, but I really liked that um, Cashin gets on the line and he's like, tell my mom that she'd be proud of me um, because his last. Oh, no, this, this show's going to get me again. I'm going to cry on air because his last line in Rogue One, the last thing he ever says is your father would be proud of you to, to Jen. Um, and I think there's something really nice for for a character like Cashin who is um you know originally shown to us in Rogue One as like a cold-blooded killer and someone who kind of operates without connection um and then as we see him in in the start of Andor someone who's quite literally displaced from his family and desperately seeking out his family um it's really nice to see there's this element of he is actually someone who cares not in a sort of bitter and revengeful way, but like he is someone who is trying to to do right by the people that he loves, trying to do right by his parents. And 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 um, th- he values that relationship. And, it, you know, he's literally calling mom. He's calling mom um, to be mm-hmm. like, look, mom, are you proud? I'm riding my bike with no hands. Um, and, and I think there's something really kind of nice and grounding about that, especially when you kind of compare it to how um Karn, uh, Karn Evil Number Nine, um, deals with his mother, and and that kind of contrast, and 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 that kind of um, conflict between the two, and and it's so nice to see that this is how they're bringing in Rogue One, and you know they even make that really overt reference to where he's looking out at the horizon, and that's literally just Rogue One, um, and it didn't feel like it was too too much, or like too like, hey guys, have you seen Star Wars before? Yeah, no, I. It's one of those things that's perfect because now every time I watch Rogue One, I'm going to think back to this scene. Yeah. It's like, oh, he was in a very similar spot when he learned about what happened to his mom. Uh, and like, that's like super heartbreaking to think of like all the bad things that have ever happened to Cash and happened on a beach. Like um, <laughs> he, he got arrested on a beach, which is kind of what separate, like removed any chance of him seeing Marva before oh. she actually, um, you know, passed because I, it did sound like... Uh, Bix and Brasso were trying to find some way to get in touch with Cass when Marva's health took a turn in the previous episodes. Um, so it's literally the fact that he got caught on this beach that led to him not being able to be there. And then it's on the beach he finds out. And then it'll be on a later beach where he gets turned into Adams. Um, so it's just not not a good time <laughs> for her and or on the beach. Um but it, this is like one of the things prequels can do, right? Yeah. It's like, now I'm going to watch the scene with Rogue One or watch a scene with Melshi and instantly I'm going to like think about other stuff that I think rocks and has a lot of depth that, you know, maybe they couldn't do as much in uh, Rogue One, like say with the Melshi character who's probably like 
12th on the billing at best in that movie. Um, But now he feels like he's part of the team. And I totally get everything that's part of that interaction. And it doesn't feel like this is Melshi being inserted to the story because, you know, he'll help fill out a Wikipedia page. But instead, because, hey, this gives someone who has good vibes on set, which, again, we talk about the value of good vibes in a production translating to good vibes in you know, the actual piece of media. But then also it's just like he has an established relationship with uh, Diego Luna. Like you said, they don't have any unnecessary bickering. Um, Like they like kind of argue about how best to steal the alien chip off Narkina 5. Um, But they're not like obstacles to each other. They are like, we we should steal. It's like, no, we should wait. No, we should run. No, we should wait. And then they like basically get caught doing that. But it's like, They've done like the biggest thing possible together. They've taken that leap of faith out of the prison and swam to shore and have been on the run. They've been hanging off the edge of cliffs together. Um, like so the story has shown us that there's no need for these two characters to be put at odds just to kind of further a storyline or create tension or delay this so that they can pay off everything in the last episode. Everything just feels very organic and true to the characters. Yeah. And I, I think it also it kind of does this really interesting thing because, you know, I will admit, um I the 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 version of Cashin that we're seeing in the show is is not necessarily the character that I thought he was going to be, and I and I don't mean that like in a negative way. Like I'm I'm delighted, utterly delighted with the way that the show has gone. But but I if you told me to expect well, which which did happen, in, but you know when we were told to expect an Andor TV show, I was thinking it was going to be more along the lines of um something like the Americans, where you know. Um, these are people who are fundamentally alone and like, yeah, like, you know, Philip and Elizabeth have each other, but in, in the grand scheme of things, they almost rarely have each other. Um, and, and then it's really just them against the world. Um, and this show, and, and you know, it's something that Tony Gilroy has been talking a lot about in, in the press that he's been doing, but the show has decided to take the approach of, of asking the question that is again, a question I never would have thought to have asked when Cashin shows up at the end of Rogue One with this crew full of 30 guys who are all ready to go die on the words of, as someone in a previous scene says, uh, a criminal and her imperial father. And how did how did that character get to the point where he could convince all of these people to go die for him? Um, and, and the show takes the approach, well, he's an organizer. He's someone who could build these relationships, these meaningful relationships with people and get them to be better and do better and to to kind of push themselves beyond what they're, they're previously capable of. He's an organizer. Um, and I think there's really something nice about how, you know, when these two guys leave, um, Cashin isn't like, you need to stay with me, Melshi, because we've been through something life changing together and I need you to be around me forever. Um, and he's also not fucked off that Melshi's going. Melshi's like, we need to tell the world about this. The world needs to hear it. And Cashin's like, fuck yeah, dude, you're right. Like, take my gun. You're going to go tell the world about this. And even though Cashin doesn't know it at the time, we'll meet back up later in about five years and everything will be grand. And there's that 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 kind of intimation of, of, of trust and 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 belief and faith and hope in these other people, which is just these really crucial sort of characteristics for any organizer. And and it's quite nice to see because it is very clearly the lines are demarcated. It is everyone against the empire. And these people do come together um, to face off against the empire. And there's not this sort of unnecessary uh, hyper individualism or conflict stemming from being super individualistic, which which I think is just very refreshing. 
Yeah, I was a big fan of Melshi wanting to hit the galactic retweet button on what's <laughs> happening at Narkina 5. It's just like, it's basically what I do on Twitter. I see some kind of war crime happening in a global South country that no one on my timeline cares about, and I retweet it just because people need to know what's happening in Burkina Faso or the Disputed Zone or wherever else. Um, but yeah, no, it was really good. He gives him, he had two guns in his safe. He had his like whatever Kyle Katar and Dark Forces one that I think Cash <laughs> held on to. And then he gave the other blaster. I think that's the corporate blaster, actually, the one he uh, took off Karn back in Ferrix. Yes. Uh, which is the one that Skeen asked him about, which I think is, uh, I don't know if that's going to matter, but that I think that is very interesting if Melshi gets caught with a corporate blaster, what that might mean or what that might mean for him. Yep. Um, and they're, like they have no idea if anyone else got out. Like that's literally what part of this conversation is. Yeah. Is like how many do you think made it? And the only thing Cash is sur- sure of is not enough of them. Yeah. Um. I'm sure swimming to shore probably took a number of people, not counting Kino, and then just having to survive the Imperial patrols and then finding a way off planet. Um. A bounty of a thousand dollars, dead or alive, for any prisoner has got to be alluring to the people devastated by the colonial project that is the empire. Um, I really like the scene with the aliens insofar as like, they are specifically like, look at what the empire did to our water. Um, I think that's something that maybe gets a little overshadowed in everything. Um, When we talk about empire and stuff, we definitely talk about resource extraction, um, but we don't often talk as much about like the environmental devastation that comes with it. Possibly because most recently we're extracting oil from the Middle East and we don't think about that kind of stuff in a desert. But if you look at like all the colonial projects in Africa, all the diamond mining, all the emerald mining, all that kind of stuff, and how that ruins like entire regions, um, because then all that filth gets into a lake or a river that flows down to local villages and just absolutely despoils the entire land mass, the entire continent, or in this case, the entire planet, basically. Um, and I really like that they highlight that and don't just... Um, you know, it's again, it's like those small details, that small E empire that makes the big E capital E empire really sing in the show Mm -hmm. is they have thought through all the logical consequences of what's going on here. Yes. Yeah. And and so, okay. So, okay. God, this episode has my brain going like a fucking pinball. Um, so on the Melshi and Cashin and the gun thing, um, that part is now cracking me up because um, Cashin is always giving away his guns because like in Rogue One, right, um, Jen gets the gun mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. K2, the little fucking cop, is like, why does she get a gun and I don't? And all she has to say is trust goes both ways, which is just not true at all. And Cashin's like, yeah, fuck it, take it. Um, and here he is like handing over his gun. And and I think maybe a different show would turn that around and have Melshi be a traitor who shoots him, which is why Cashin is later like hesitant about giving away his guns or whatever but it's literally just cash and just gives away his guns you need a weapon when you're going into a war zone the whole world is a war zone anyway so that's that that's fun uh there's a whole world of fandom and fanfic writers who are gonna have a field day with that and i uh am praying for them and hope that they have the time of their lives with it um the water thing is especially interesting because because there is uh, because in case anybody hasn't noticed, we are living in a climate apocalypse right now uh, and things are not going well. Um, and and water and access to safe water, as you rightly point out, as, as an issue, it is 
is something that is kind of cropping up, not kind of, is definitely cropping up, um, regardless of whether you were in the first, second or third world. And, you know, you have water defenders in Canada and in and in uh, the Plains states in the United States um, who are fighting for access to free and clean and, and drinkable water. You have um, issues over water rights here in the UK. Um, in, in Scotland, um, you've got like a, a, a really serious and, and quite disturbing issue with uh you know, access to to like continual access to uh, safe drinking water. That is a huge thing that we are still dealing with now in the year of our Lord 2022. Um, or you've got the the British state is pumping out uh, shitloads of shit into the beaches, um, uh, like that surround this horrible little island because we've just left the EU and now we no longer have any water regulations. And of course, it's killing all of the beaches, making it harder to swim, making a whole bunch of people sick, uh, just all those delightful things. But then you've also got fucked up things like Nestle, um, Nestle who are trying to privatize water. Um, globally um, and, and, you know, doing things like getting breastfeeding mothers on formula um, because they are literally so deprived of the nutrients that they need because all the food and water has been uh, privatized and then selling them that formula and those water bottles back at like a 10,000% markup. Um, this is the kind of water uh, slavery that that Nestle does. Um, and then you've also got, uh, you know, it's just everywhere. This, this problem of resource extraction is everywhere. And I think there's also something quite interesting to seeing like these characters who are aliens who look quite seriously nothing like us they're not like humanoid aliens they're just aliens and they also have an issue with water and and there's water as the sort of universal connection point um and and i think it's quite nice to see um the the show tapping into that as there are some things that we need to live and that is you know uh, there's a sort of uh scientific approach to that which is like i don't know carbon oxygen uh, hydrogen whatever the fuck i don't know i failed high school chemistry um but then there's also the sort of intangible unscientific things and that's human connection that's human dignity and human decency and the show is weaving those together um, and also solidarity and the show is weaving those things together to show that if you lose one, you will necessarily lose the other. And so you need to keep these things in balance and you need to keep these things closely linked because otherwise we're all just shit out of luck. Yeah. And the aliens are like, well, you know, they fucked our water. So fuck the empire. Yeah. <laughs> um, they kind of like verbally toy with turning them in. But I think just th these seem like good working class aliens. I don't think they're going to uh, hand them over to the police. <laughs> uh, we did get possibly two curse words in the star wars universe which i know people will say there's probably some in video games and books but i can't think of um any live action versions of star wars swears no um but i think these aliens refer to the empire as scabin <laughs> like scabin like fucking like the fucking empire the scabin <laughs> empire um and I think um, they also say care not the snod who they kill. Nice. Like they don't give a shit about who they kill. Um, snod, spell it S-N-O-D. <laughs> so uh, we possibly got our first two live action Star Wars curse words, unless you know of any other. Nice. Um, yeah, I think the only other one was shit, but that's so boring. So this one rocks. I'm up for the scab and, and snod, the glup shittos of swears. <laughs> <laughs> I th uh, where do you want to take it next? So, so the aliens kind of get to a fun thing, which is, um, and I hated it, and I really couldn't like look at it except for through my fingers. But the little webs that they cast, um, you know, whatever, fairly standard web design, and the sound, the sound design um, for them, for those webs, and then the sound design in particular in this episode, I, I just really want to talk about because I, I, I think it's, you know, we talk about this on every episode we do about the show, but like the craftsmanship in the show is just unbelievably impressive. But, but I feel like the foley work and the sound on this episode in particular really stood out to me as something that was 
head and shoulders above its kind of competitors in some ways like the the like visceral squelching of the nets um was great and that's like great creature sound and that's kind of like what are things that sound weird and un- unsavory and and kind of unsettling what do those things sound like and and that's a fun part of sound design but then there's the sort of like more mundane elements of just like a general soundscape, like a, a landscape of sound. Um, and and one of the ones that really stuck out to me in a way that kind of made me warm and fuzzy, despite the gut-wrenching sadness of the scene, was the rain that was tapping against Mon Mothma's windows um, when her and Vel are talking. And, you know, obviously sympathetic weather, a very important part of, of uh, <laughs> you know, narrative structure and, and the kind of narrative toolbox that, that writers have at their disposal. Um, but I think there was something quite nice about how it sounded and how clear and crisp the sound effect was, because I feel like in a lot of um, shows and movies we're getting lately, sound in general tends to blur together into this sort of indistinct mass of just, you know, like Phil Spector's wall of noise, but without any sort of craftsmanship behind it. It's just shit that vaguely sounds like things that are going on. And you're not really meant to tell the difference because thinking too hard about it would kind of rupture the point of these kind of cheap and easy and and thoughtless movies and TV shows. And it was nice to hear just, you could sit there and listen to the tap, 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 tap of the water against, or I assume it would be water against the, mm-hmm. against the window. And beyond just knowing to use that as a scene setter, knowing to give that sort of priority and and preference within the kind of sound mix, I think was, was nice. And it, 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 it just, I think goes to show how well run how well run the show really is all the way through from from the biggest things like the most obvious plot beats to to really just the smallest things like sound and makeup design yeah no it it was a great episode on that front also the score was incredible Mm. this episode Mm -hmm. um i feel like um there have been strings involved in the score all throughout, but I feel like especially with the ending credits and cast looking out onto the beach, they went for a very robust string arrangement, mm-hmm. like getting some more cellos and bass in there than we've heard uh, previously. Because um, I'd say generally the show has had kind of a synthy vibe to it, um, but I felt kind of like in that one really down moment for cast, they kind of reverted to a more traditional orchestral uh, music, which I thought was really really just fantastic overall um and then the music like during a lot like the luthan space fighter sequence and then all the stuff with mon mothma i think mon mothma might have my favorite like light motif in the show um because like all the music that surrounds her scenes have just been utterly impeccable Mm -hmm. um but the sound design like in terms of the foley work it's like they also make it work for like the little things. Like even when Cass is like flipping through all his credits and his like secret suitcase, mm-hmm. like you can hear the individual clinking of the like metal coins or whatever you want to call them. Um, it just, everything is very well considered. And this show is like very aware of that because going back to that third episode when um, they're banging on the steel yes. and then Marva says like, you know, it's when they stop that you really have to pay attention um, which I feel like is going to be something that's going to rear its head in the finale, possibly. Um, but they they are very aware of the noise they're making, and they're also very aware of their silences, like when they're cutting out all the Foley work, when they're cutting out the soundtrack, just so you can sit there for a moment. Um, I've seen very few things, especially of late, that are this deliberate in terms of its choices like that. Yes. Actually, you know what? That deliberate deliberateness of choice, uh, I don't know why that ended up being difficult to say, but there we are. Um, it, 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 uh, it was something I was only kind of getting the, the cogs turning in my head on right before we, we sat down to record this, but um, there's this really interesting kind of uh, 
motif theme kind of building up here. Um, the, the show is, is very obviously inspired by like film noir, uh, World War II era war movies. Um, it is far more of the 40s than the kind of 1970s influence that we get in a lot of Rogue One. Um, it, in some ways, it is returning to its Star Wars roots because A New Hope is very much a World War II movie than anything else. Um, it began to define what uh, Vietnam War movies looked like, but was at the time aping World War II movies. Uh, and so one of the things I was kind of giggling at is is there's this element of um Bell and Clea um look and are designed very clearly deliberately designed to look like two different um classic Hollywood stars. Um and you've got you've got Clea with her um victory roles, her dark hair and victory roles, uh, and her dark lips and her kind of always serious looking, um, yet still kind of young. She's almost ageless in a way. She's got this like really round face and and um, you know, she doesn't look like she's got um, she doesn't look particularly old, but but she's got this kind of timelessness and ageness, agelessness to her. And and that for me kind of evokes um, Ingrid Bergman um, and Ingrid Bergman is this actress who, who's the sort of like highly erotic kind of power broker of an actress or she, she certainly plays characters who are who are very, um, you know, even if they're not perfectly in control of every situation, they're very sort of self-possessed characters. Um, and, mm-hmm. and, and she has this thing where she can look at the camera or, or look at whoever she's sharing a scene with. And she can be like Clea's covered from you know her neck to her toes and it can still feel like the sexiest look you've ever seen on screen and Clea has that thing going and it's it's the hair it's the hair that's you know meant to inspire the victory rolls and it's the dark lip and it's the kind of half smoky eyes and then you compare that to to Vel who you know as I keep joking is Veronica Lake and and if you think about Veronica Lake's career um and veronica lake as as an actress you know she was this this actress this woman who was who they really worked hard to build as a femme fatale and was of course a femme fatale for a couple of years but she had a reputation for being a pain in the ass and for being difficult to work with and i think like there are some kind of funny euphemisms people use for for women like her but i think the one that i always find funniest is like complex personality um and 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 vel is like that bell is is very much like that she's got this sort of she is self-possessed, but she's self-possessed in a way that doesn't feel like you're coming up against a wall of iron. It feels like you're kind of coming up against a wall of fire. Um, and and that kind of peekaboo hair, the blonde curls and the slightly lighter, more youthful, even though I think Val does look a bit older or a bit more aged in some ways, that all evokes the sort of waning days of Veronica Lake's career to me. And and I don't think it's a mistake that these are the kind of two places that you can go to. Um, and, and I think there is this deliberateness, you know, even with something as simple as like Melshi's costume on Niamos and that awesome printed shirt, button up mm. shirt. Like these things are all done so deliberately and they're done to evoke a very specific thing. And obviously this is 101 level design, but it's something that we've really been lacking for a long time. And it's and and seeing it in the show and and getting to talk about it in the show as if it actually means something and not because it's just a reference to a different IP or whatever. Um feels like a really good kind of promise for the future for not just episode 12, but um season two, which won't come for another two years. Uh, okay, so it's funny uh, how you talked about that because me thinking about Clea's hairstyle, it actually kind of reminds me of like Dracula from the 1930s, um, especially how you were calling her timeless in a way. Um, and to be fair, I haven't actually seen that 1930s Dracula, <laughs> but I've seen the Treehouse of Horror Simpsons where Mr. <laughs> Burns plays that Dracula and his hair looks a lot like Clea. 
Um, but kind of getting into that Veronica Lake thing with Val and how, you know, she kind of had a reputation uh, behind the scenes or whatever of being difficult to work with here. Val is like sick of acting. She's sick of this performance. You know, Clay is not happy with her coming to the uh, storefront and just like openly talking about Luthen and Eldani and all this stuff. It's like, she's sick of it. She's sick of this bullshit. She needs to know what to do next. She's not cut out for this side of it, the performance side of it. Even though later on in the episode when she's with Mon Mothma, we see her literally like put on her acting face before going off to talk to Lita. Um, So I, I just really like how you... Uh, talked about that because that actually kind of comes through and what they're going for with her character. Um, and I like Val also kind of being a little bit petty is like, what have you done for him lately? Um, and uh, Clea responds like, I don't have lately. I have always. Mm-hmm. It's a constant blur of plate spinning and knives on the floor. Like she doesn't have the luxury of like, well, what have I done? And she's not like uh, Elon Musk asking you to print out your code from the last six months or whatever and say, hey, look at all these things I've done. Um, because actually doing things isn't really measured by lines of code or by like the number of heists you necessarily did. Of course, that helps. I, I think it's a very positive thing that Val has on her resume that she did the Aldani heist. But um, I think it speaks to kind of a different viewpoint, which again also kind of goes to the way Cinta talked to Val about these things, about how the struggle always comes first, always being the operant term, just like Clea repeats to her here. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm I'm interested to hear, like, uh, I don't mean this to sound as dumb as it's inevitably going to sound, but like, like, what do you think is going on here? Like, what is the subtext that we don't quite have all of the context for in this conversation? Like, are they are they power struggling? Are they like, like, what is it that they're vying for? Like, who are they trying to be closer to Luthen? Are they trying to usurp him? Like, what's the deal? Okay, I, I don't have a great read on this. Um, I feel like I feel like there's something between Val and Luthen and something like positive. Um, I don't necessarily think she's trying to usurp him, um, but I do think when Luthen gets involved with what Val's doing, it like gets her on the front lines. I don't think she's cut out for the Coruscant spoiled rich brat act <laughs> that she's probably been doing for a little while now. Um, and I think part of it is also that might be her pathway back to Cinta. Um, especially since she, she's clearly been in touch with Cinta. I can't think of any other way Val would know that Marva has passed. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, there are spy networks upon spy networks happening in the show, so who knows if Val has her own little birds. Um, but it sounds like she's still in touch with Cinta, and I think she, Luthen's the person that can get her in position to either get there or she otherwise just wants to do something. She's kind of sick of this sitting around, but I'm not sure. I, I honestly not sure. Do you Do you have a take on this? So I don't know. I don't know because I thought I had a take on it before that whole power struggle happened. And now I'm like, because because I, I sort of assumed that I assumed that Clea was kind of more in power than Luthen was. Um, and I know we've kind of had a couple points of maybe undermining that in the show so far, but I'm still kind of sticking to my guns on that. And I think Clea is a bit more of a power broker than 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 Luthen is in some ways um, or a bit more of an ideologue, maybe. But I also kind of thought that Vel was trying to become the next Luthen, but also had enough of a kind of uh, ideological split from him or maybe just a strategic split from him that she was like, she wanted to be him, but she also wanted to be him so she could do things a bit differently. And I thought her and Cleo were going to be aligned on that. And this felt this had a lot of animosity, but it also had a lot of Cleo being like you're nobody like why are you like i don't even think about you why are you why are you getting in my way why are you fucking up my day you just don't mean anything 
Um, and so now I'm like, maybe she just is a jumped up little rich girl who like really thinks more of herself than 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 is actually there to substantiate it. And maybe Clea, like maybe Clea is just kind of trying to prevent her organization, the one that her and, and Luthen are building from going to the dogs effectively and, and maybe falls in the way. I don't know. It's got my head turned. Yeah, the only thing I would say that kind of maybe flies against that is the fact that Vel was very insistent that Luthen knows that the information about Marva comes from him. Yeah. Uh, or, or like comes from her, yeah. rather. She wants Luthen to know that she was the one who brought that information, whether that's to because she likes Luthen and wants to work with him, or perhaps it's because then Luthen can tell someone else in this network that, hey, this lady knows what she's doing. Um, let's get her like more involved. Let's get her in the next heist or whatever Spellhouse 2.0 is or whatever it is. Um, but yeah, it's... Like you said, the power dynamics aren't really clear. I think I've kind of settled into Luthen being somewhat higher on the like org chart than Clea, just based on the past couple episodes and just kind of based on the conversation here. I think Clea has like autonomy, but I still think she her power might flow up to Luthen still. Mm. But um, I like that they've never been clear on that, and I would imagine something that like this might not have a clear cut org chart. There is no like corporate headquarters <laughs> for whatever the rebel Alliance is where they can just pull up a PDF is like, yep, it's like rebellion holdings Inc here. And then below it is rebellion holdings LLC, which, you know, flows into rebellion holdings consolidated. <laughs> um, and they're organized out in Singapore or something <laughs> like that. Um, so it, it this might be it, the pecking order is what I think it is, but it also they might not really have a pecking order or nothing like that's been firmed up or solidified in a real kind of like military or political organized way. Yeah, because uh, I also think there's something really interesting here, which is like it, is the power in this show does not emanate from who has the most guns or who has the most money or who has the most gravitas. It's the information is the thing that makes people powerful here. Um, And I think it is kind of, or it doesn't necessarily like it's not like having more information makes people more powerful, but it's like who gets to know things and who gets to choose not to know things and who has to be the one that people are protecting their information from. Um, Cause this is something that comes up in, in Mon and Bell's conversation where Val is like, right, you're you're in the hole uh, for 400 grand. Uh, does Luthen know? And Mon's like, no. Um, you know, she kind of dances around it a bit, but she ultimately comes to this issue of no, uh, Luthen doesn't know. Um, and she frames it in a, well, you know, it is simultaneously better for me if he doesn't know, but also probably better for him if he doesn't know. And Val is like, hang on, like, this is this is serious information. This is a, like game plan changing information. And and they kind of have this unresolved, not struggle, but like unresolved kind of tension over how who gets to know more about this 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 debt and how and and is it really mon's kind of prerogative to get to withhold that information or dispel it as she likes is she now some a part of something bigger where her individual like her personal finances aren't really personal anymore yeah val val herself seems to be very very like scared of mon's like financing being found out mm -hmm. um because she's the one like this can't be exposed. They cannot tie all this because I assume anything that takes down Mon Mothma will also take down Vel. Yeah. Um, I imagine it's one of those things where the entire the entire Lord's castle is burned alive. <laughs> um, you know, they don't just, you know, get the guilty parties or the people they think might be the sole responsible ones. Um, yeah, no, I think that's 
God, that is very interesting because, uh, again, I don't, it's because it seems like Vel is kind of also protecting Luthen in this, mm-hmm. but I'm not entirely sure. Um, it's like, once again, it's like the interesting layers of who's really watching for who. But let's talk about this scene because <laughs> they transition into this. So it's like literally Bix breaking down from another scene we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, and, and it's like we knew she was like tortured with the screaming screams of children, aliens, like dying um and then that kind of like cuts to like these little chandralin kids chanting um and it's like something about the old ways teach us blah 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 Mm. and it seems to be some kind of commitment of faith that seems to acknowledge that they're still into like the arranged marriages and the old chandralin customs because val barges in here is like i thought this shit was over i didn't think you like that is is this parent and like mon's like actually this is the one thing parent isn't a dipshit about either (laughs) he he He's strangely open-minded, but man, what do they have on their hands here with Leda and her little church group? Oh my god, little shithead trad daughter. Um, I, I, the thing that was cracking me up about this that I didn't clock until after this episode is done is that they also do this in the Americans with Paige and like mm-hmm, uh, Paige mm-hmm. is a character, right? I think Paige is a brilliant character all the way through the Americans because she's like a genuine, like a genuinely like not sympathetic but like empathetic portrayal of a teenage girl i think in a media landscape where teenage girls often get the the short end of the stick um and and Paige is always funny to me because i fucking hate Paige. Paige is the worst character in the americans always always i always hate her but she's also like i totally get where she's coming from and if i had wackadoo parents like her i would probably also do something ridiculous like become a little evangelical freak i know she's not actually an evangelical she's like a unitarian universalist which is the least offensive thing you could possibly be i'm not giving <laughs> her enough credit however i hated it anyways you've got a cool communist mom what is wrong with you but like lita's doing this right now like she is becoming this awful little red scare listening trad daughter and like it is so funny and i think also so kind of heartening that it's her own doing like it's not like she's being influenced by the malign sort of actor that is her father and it's not like she's reacting purely against her mother she's a little shithead teenager but she's a little shithead teenager on on her own terms and like that like that is how teenage girls operate like yeah like when girls are teenagers when all people are teenagers like okay they'll be influenced and they'll they'll react against their parents but they're also starting to learn to make decisions of their own for the first time and they're starting to develop a sort of intellectual personality of their own and and you don't often see that privileged in in sort of mainstream entertainment you don't except for when it's like the kind of shitty stuff like girls or um ladybird which i'm gonna be controversial and say i just fucking hated um because it's always like oh well girls are either teenage girls are either just like purely rebellious or desperately in 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 need of finding themselves um and this is i think a far more honest portrayal which is sometimes teenage girls are in need of finding themselves but sometimes they just latch on to dumb shit because it feels good to like dumb shit and that's all, where all their pals are um and i think lita being like a little trad asshole who's gonna go march in charlottesville with a tiki torch rocks um and it also makes mon's whole arc funnier because it's not like her signing up her daughter to be in this like arranged marriage with the little banker son would go against Lita's wishes it's exactly what she wants but Mon's wishes are like no my daughter needs to be a little liberal elite and she's not gonna do that and she's gonna fall in love to get married unlike me and Lita's like I don't want that I want to do the fucked up shit that you hated and and that's such a funny little shading to this whole plot yeah I like, I know the timelines are a little goofy, uh, like they've changed, a, you know, a little stuff with like Cass's age and stuff like that. <laughs> but I wonder, like young Mon Mothma, when she thought she wanted to get into politics, and I don't know if, if like 14, she would have like the empire would have risen by now or if it would be a little bit after that. Mm. 
but you could imagine like her like you know kind of coming up and decided she wanted to be political like getting rid of arranged marriages on chandrila would probably be something she was thinking about mm-hmm. from a very early age um so to be put in a position where she actually has to perform chandralin custom and be part of this system that she would in a perfect world if there had been no empire she'd be actively looking to like get rid of this tradition um i think is kind of like a cruel irony and i think that just once again is the writing like how well they like seeded in all this arranged marriage conversation through this series um for it to pay off as such and this is also just an incredible scene for uh genevieve o'reilly mm. uh who is she's basically holding back tears the entire time um because she knows she's in trouble. She knows her daughter is becoming a, like even more of a dipshit than she was before, <laughs> which breaks her heart. Um, like, I don't know. It just, and then just watching like the despair on her face, like in her entire conversation with Val, the camera is like slowly like pulling in on her too. And she's not crying, but you can see the tears just all up in her eyes. Like she doesn't know what to do. She's going to be fucked by the empire. She's fucking over her daughter, um, who might deserve it, but she still wouldn't want to do that. Yeah. Um, she feels like she's like between a rock and a hard place. Yeah. And I think there's also, again, like this really lovely kind of interesting contrast between between Mon, Mom, Mon, um, Mon, Mamtha, <laughs> uh, and uh, and 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 Edie Karn again, um, because Edie is as powerless in her her child's life in her useless fucking son's life as Mon is in her daughter's life. Um, But Edie expresses that in a very different way. Like Edie is like, you, my son, are a waste of space and I hate you and I'm so embarrassed by you and I'm going to keep doing things to try and make your life better, but you're just going to screw it all up because you're like a thankless, ungrateful, little twat uh, and I'm just embarrassed by you. And like she continues to kind of harangue him, but she's also continuing to try and help him in in the way that, you know, the way that she knows how. Um, And she has actually tangibly helped him. Whereas Mon, who is ostensibly thinking and saying all of the right things, which is I won't force my child into the life that I had to live and I'm going to give my child a better life than than I had. And Mon is so committed to her own impotence that she can't actually do anything but cry. And I don't want to say that like crying is a bad thing. Like, I, you know, I cried through that scene and I'm not even her mother. Um, and and like, you know, crying is a totally rational response to to the world that Mon Mothman inhabits and, and the choices that she's faced with. But crying is pretty much all that mon can do um and it's pretty much all that she's willing to do because she can't let the hate flow through her to quote another star wars character like she can't let the the kind of rank injustice of the world around her motivate her to do anything serious and concrete the best she's going to do is stand up and deliver yet another speech that nobody's going to listen to um or maybe she won't or maybe she'll be pushed to something greater in episode 12 but but Everything we've seen from her so far just shows her kind of total spinelessness. And and these two women, Edie and, and Mon, take their relative disempowerment in the lives of their children and in and the lives and their own lives and, and you know their interactions with the world around them and and you know exorcise that in two very different ways. Um, and I think it is kind of um, interesting and edifying edifying uh, to to see that like <laughs> Mon's kind of terminal sort of uh, the soppiness spinelessness um is just now actually actually and actively only translating to pain for her she's the only one that's going to be in more pain little lita little lita shithead um would probably be delighted to get married off to a rich 
uh, a rich guy's son. Uh, this is totally in line with her traditions and values. And she's 13 years old, so she's not going to think better. Um, and Perrin um, is open to thinking differently, but doesn't necessarily think differently. And so probably wouldn't be annoyed by his daughter being married off into the establishment that he's desperate to be a part of. The only one that's actually upset about this so far, besides Val, is Mon. And so when Mon is crying, she's really only crying tears for herself. And and Edie, by contrast, is fucking furious, but she's fucking furious on behalf of her son and is um, kind of forcing him to do better by getting him to this Bureau of Weights and Measurements job, but also having to sit there and be like, my son has made his choices and he's a fool and a moron for it, but I can't intervene any further. Yeah, the mystery of your former triumphs has been vanquished. Oh, so um, good. Which, to be fair, <laughs> it's one of the greatest lines. I'm not entirely sure I know what it means. Nope. Uh, but it sure sounds good. <laughs> Um, I don't know. I don't know if her former triumphs is like a, like a tongue in cheek way of referring to what happened on Ferris yeah. with him or not. Um, we, we can untangle this. We're recording this like literally an hour after we watch the episode. <laughs> so, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll chew on that line for a bit, but I love that we get a uh, Linus Mosk, oh. um, the short little, uh, stout Scottish general guy that was in the first couple episodes. <laughs> Um, he's apparently like back on his feet. He looks like he has some kind of industrial repair job still on Morlano one. Um, it looks like, um, and there's this, just this long comedic sequence of the phone call he has with Karn where it's clear that he's not really understanding more than one out of every 12 words out of Karn's mouth. Um, but he's still generally able to communicate all the information that Karn needs to know, um, to get his ass over to Ferrix and all that. Yes. Um, and I think this is also brilliant because, uh, Star Wars in the sequel era, bar one notable and very important example has kind of not relied on, but, but been built upon the foundation of like the kind of infallibility of technology uh, when they need technology to work it mostly works unless there's human intervention uh to do otherwise the ships always fly the comms always work uh the shields always last um and uh, there's one important example of this kind of kind of uh which is last jedi uh where oscar isaac uh poe poe dameron uh sits around and kind of fucks around in the x-wing um fucking with Don Gleason uh Hux where he's like I'm I'm on the phone I'm waiting for for Hux I'm waiting for Hux can you guys hear me is this thing on and that's a really good bit about like oh maybe there is enough of a, a sort of possibility of technology not working uh for for this to be a bit that that could conceivably fly and um, but previous Star Wars is Star Wars I and by that, I mean the original trilogy. I ignore the existence of the prequels. Although even the prequels actually do get involved a little bit in that. And technology breaks and it gets in the way. And technology can't do everything and can't smooth over every bump and scratch. And it can't bridge every, uh, you know, geographical gap. And coming back to see things like, uh, like the connection being dog shit, like the 4G, 5G not working right on this FaceTime session is like a nice little way of being like kind of, you know, the screenwriters tapping the screen and being like, hey guys, remember literally less than 10 years ago when your whole lives weren't dictated by technology and sometimes these things failed? Like, do you guys remember that? Because we sure do. And remember how that was a feature of the world? <laughs> and I just like seeing it back. Like, I know Star Wars isn't really a sci-fi, but when it reaches out to some of those sci-fi-ish elements, technology-ish elements, it's always kind of comforting, like a nice little hug. 
Oh, man. <clears throat> we really need a Star Wars that's based off of Mission Impossible 4 Ghost Protocol, because <laughs> the entire conceit of that movie is that all the tech that Tom Cruise and his team has just breaks on site, and they basically <laughs> have to improvise everything. And it, it is one of the better Mission Impossible movies, so I really like that as an organizing uh, factor. But... Um, I actually want to hear you talk about Mosk generally and a little bit about the politics that might be behind this character. Oh, boy. Um, oh, boy. Uh, yeah, this is where I get myself arrested. So if this is the last podcast episode I ever record, uh, salute to you all. Um, so so Britain, a country, not really. It's actually the United Kingdom of Great Britain and, and Northern Ireland. Uh, the shitty little island uh, that looks like a fucked up boot is Britain. Uh, and that of its constituent parts is Wales, England, uh, and and Scotland, uh, where I live. Uh, and and the British political spectrum, such as it is, has this really interesting thing where there is uh, not just a class component to its ideological spectrum, but like a very national class component to it. So it's not just that there's like working the working class right and the working class left against the bourgeois right and the bourgeois left. There's the working class Scottish left against the working class Scottish right. The working class Scottish right not working against necessarily, although quite often does, uh, but in in some sort of tension or conflict with the bourgeois English or British right. Um, and and so when you think about the right as it has existed in in Britain uh, since uh, we'll, we'll say generously since the French Revolution since uh, 1789, um, the 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 kind of upper echelons of the right have been uh, dominated by like the, the aristocracy, right? And 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 this is um, an aristocracy that exists. Uh, across international lines it is just as much the the scottish feudal lairds as it is the english feudal lords um and and these guys kind of came together and responded in various ways some good some fucking crazy to things like the rise of the industrial revolution the rise of industrial capitalism um if you're at all interested in any of this i recommend reading uh anything by tom nairn who is the preeminent scholar on all of these things um and and by the time you get to now the glorious now um you have a split between this sort of aristocratic, transnational uh, British right and uh, an undercurrent, um, a, a right wing undercurrent that I think, you know, most prominently reared its head um, in the 1940s under uh, Oswald Mosley, uh, 1930s rather, rather under Oswald Mosley. Uh, this is the British Union of Fascists. But then again, in the 70s, Enoch Powell, uh, if you've ever heard Eric Clapton, uh, his racist trade, he's referencing Enoch Powell. Um, and, and this is a very, um, working class form of uh, British loyalism, which means loyalism to the British state, but also loyalism to the British monarchy. And, and it is something that is pervasive um, among certain types of the Protestant working class in Scotland and also in a slightly changed variant in, in Northern Ireland, although slightly more prominently there. And this guy, I've been joking on on Twitter, uh, I've been calling him the Iron Brew Hud because uh, he's got his little, well, he did at the start, his little orange and, and blue uh, uniform, which is like the branding for Iron Brew, which is a soft drink in the, in, in the UK, mostly in Scotland, uh, that actually outsells Coca-Cola here and is very much identified with the Scottish nation. Uh, and then Hun, which is a slur, pejorative slur that I should really be careful about saying on air. 
uh, for uh, fans of Rangers Football Club who tend to be uh, Protestants. Um, and they are in a rivalry with the other Glasgow Football Club, uh, which is uh, Celtic, uh, which is green colored. Uh, and of course, therefore, the Catholic Club. Um, and and this guy, this Elon Musk, Linus Musk, uh, Linus Musk guy, um, <laughs> represents this kind of, he's not exactly articulating it, but he's very obviously kind of point to this working class loyalism, which is, it is not in itself interested. It's not like the climber, it's, they're not social climbers. They're not interested in being the richest people in the world. Um, they're not interested in being rich at all. They're very proud of their working class aesthetics. They're very proud of, you know, not necessarily of speaking in, in Scots, but they're very proud of not speaking in, in received pronunciation, you know, the Queen's or King's English, I should say. Um, they are very proud of their sort of, you know, the football hole organism and and uh you know working industrial jobs and going down to the pub the scheme pubs which is the flat top pubs um and they're not interested in trying to ape a bourgeois lifestyle um but they are also deeply loyal to the political right and to the british state um and and this guy he just he has everything everything about him screams this is this is who he is. He's this 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 the Scottish loyalist, um, and it's a very specific and, and and increasingly important trend in British politics right now. Um, if you take out the Ireland factor, which is obviously a hugely complicating factor, because uh, <laughs> yeah, for reasons I can't get into here, um, there's been an ongoing fight between the sort of working class and pseudo working class right. Uh, spectrum or right traje trajectory in British politics against this bourgeois right. Um, and if you've heard anything about the UK in the last couple of months, uh, you will have seen that we've gone through a shit ton of prime ministers. Uh, and that's like Theresa May to Boris Johnson to Liz Truss to Rishi Sunak. And and what that is, is kind of a, 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 a struggle, a power struggle of sorts, an interparliamentary struggle of sorts between this sort of pseudo working class. Uh, and I say pseudo working class because Boris Alexander de Feffel Johnson is not working class, but likes to ape those those kind of uh, political kind of um, shibboleths um, between a struggle of that wing, which is a sort of more aggressively um, British, capital B British, versus the kind of Rishi Sunak, Theresa May wing of uh, the British Tory party, which is um, British, but in a slightly different sense in that it's more tied to like Englishness um, and is generally less concerned with the state of, uh, for example, Wales, Ireland and Scotland. Um, so whereas a cunt like this Musk guy, Musk guy rather, um, would be deeply aggrieved at the concept of uh, Scottish independence or United Ireland. And um, some of the kind of Rishi Sunak types will care, but it's more in an imperial sense in that they don't want to lose the empire. They're not concerned with Scotland as an entity or Ireland as an entity or Wales as an entity. Um, and seeing them pick this up and, and this potential for like a class to differential and and sort of um between Kyle Soller's character and and Linus Mosk um this potential for similar aims but alternating strategies and alternating cultures to get there it's just this really brilliant way of adding texture to the empire that has for so long just been this sort of Peter Cushing stiff upper lip English empire and now now they are properly making it the British empire and and that is a it is a nice touch it's a it's a it's a bit of flair that's long overdue and also very funny because I do like getting to say the words iron brew hun <laughs> okay I can't say that I really know anything about that yet 
but on Tony Gilroy's recommendation, I have been listening to the Revolutions podcast. <laughs> yes. uh, so I am slowly starting to learn a little bit more about British history. Granted, um, they were they just did season one on the English Civil Wars of the 1600s, so I'm not quite caught up to the Industrial Revolution and afterwards, but I assume I will learn something eventually about all that too. Yeah, hopefully we hit the heat death of the universe before you have to learn too much about it because this is a terrible state. <laughs> Let's hop on over to Ferrix, because um, quite a bit happens there. Um, we first see Ferrix like in almost like a 2001 A Space Odyssey style Ooh, shot of like BMO, like BMO, uh, <laughs> B2 Emo or B, um, like a close up on his like one eye. And you kind of hear the voices of the other daughters of Ferrix like talking behind him. But they really do have like a center frame orange eye shot that is literally Hell 9000 out of 2001. Mm. Mm. Oh, poor B. Yeah, um, yeah, and he's like super, like freaked out or sad about Marva passing. Um, he has this really heartbreaking line, uh, where he says, "I don't want to be alone. I want Marva." Um, because Brasso's like, "If you want some time alone with the corpse, uh, you can have it before we move it out." Um, but like, B just, he just. He loves Marva. That's like really all he's known. And he just doesn't know what to do after this. And I think some of this is also like if Andor or Cass was actually here in the moment, like some of the stuff he'd be expressing is the stuff that B actually gets to express mm. in the moment. Mm. It's heartbreaking because he's like a little dog. Um, and and like, you know, I, I, it's fun to make these jokes about the other Star Wars droids, right? Like they're all like dogs except for K2 and 3PO who are just pain in the ass. Um, but he's really behaving like a like a human, like a person personified, personified dog, I guess. Um, and there's kind of something a bit funny because I know Star Wars has been on this bent that I hate of droid rights and droids are actually people, which is why we should be really nice to tech uh, and buy an Amazon Alexa to put in your house. Um, and it's nice to kind of reverse this and be like, ha, they're dogs for real now. And if you say anything against it, the animal liberation uh, organization will come blow your shit up. And, and I quite like that <laughs> far more than I, I like uh, equating droid. Oh, my God equating droids to literal actual human slaves i think this is a far nicer way of handling it yeah i think there was a line like in episode two no episode three like the big showdown in ferrix where they were threatening to pull uh b's power supply <laughs> and marva's like you can't do that um so it feels like there's some respect of droids without going full on like they are due moral respect with all the rights that entails um yes yeah uh, droid, droid rights are fun for like a short story set in star wars mm -hmm. or i guess a solo story <laughs> um but <laughs> but it is absolutely not something i want to be one of the organizing principles of stories in this universe no um God. And I also like that when they actually move Marva's body out of her home, um, all of this, it like at first just looks like, you know, the camera's watching it from inside the house and you're just watching um, the crowds of people like kind of line up alongside of it as they move the corpse. But then they cut to the inside and you realize this is all from B's point of view. Mm. Um, and he mm. he's heartbroken. It, it just really sucks. <laughs> oh, God, I hate this. This is so hard to watch and talk about. I've just like... 
it, it's it was really painful for me and i think going back and forth as they were kind of cutting around in these scenes was kind of a gut punch a lot of different gut punches because it was like sobbing and then not sobbing because i was trying to pay attention and sobbing again um but i did like that this is the first time i think a dead woman has been handled well in a star wars and it feels weird that this should be anything with a trend in it but like i hated how they did with padme i just think that was bullshit and awful um i really hated how they handled it with carrie fisher um and uh whatever the fuck leaving her out on a dissection table for half of a 10 million hour long movie so you could just be like Perry Fisher's corpse is on there uh for uh while you're watching having your assault your your senses assaulted by the worst cinema you've ever seen this was nice this was like we know there's a body under there or probably not there's a prop under there um but we don't need to linger on it we what we are lingering on is the people and the people are the characters who are mourning her. And we don't need to come back to a fucking body under a sheet to, like, you know, ogle at the sort of horror of mourning or whatever. It, it, the mourning can be more about the emotions than it is about the, like, literal physical corpse that they're pillaging. Yeah, it's funny you mentioning that, like, none of the women die well in Star Wars. I think Jin, who literally gets yeah. muked on a beach, has the most, like, classy uh, death in all of Star Wars. That's why the she's the best. <laughs> she simply cannot uh, fuck I, up. I, I cannot argue with you there. <laughs> um, also present for this little, like, procession of moving the corpse are both Cinta, who has been watching for a little while and probably got a message to Val, as we discussed about earlier, but also Corv. Um, he's the little Imperial guy that we kind of flagged last time. Um, as soon as I saw his name get a subtitle this episode, I'm like, oh, we got to remember Corv. Um, and he basically, um, we hear him talking to other people who appear to be surveilling uh, Marva's house. Because um, I think there's a scene later on where Brasso goes to clean up and you see him get on comms and say like, hey, people in the back, eyes open, um, spotters in front, which I assume refers to like a sniper or someone with like a vantage point. Um, and he's also able to relay to the corp, uh, Captain Tigo, the one who's kind of garrisoned out in Ferrix. And Tigo is able to get in touch with Dedra um, about the funeral that the locals want to have. And they've been denying permits and the locals have been building a list of grievances. But then Dedra's like, no, let them have the funeral. Make sure it's a very limited affair, so very small. And that way we can basically put a box around it. We can watch everyone that's going in. If Cass is going to come back, this might be a way to like ensnare him. Um, so Dedra views this as an opportunity, and this might be a reason why she didn't move on Marva earlier, um, you know, even though they kind of had a net around her anyways. Mm. It was the, again, the little FaceTime between the little weirdos, uh, little kind of half-wit terrorists in, uh, in Ferrix and, and Dedra, um, I, I no Deidre. I'm not, I'm not falling prey to this. It's Deidre. Um, I'm not doing this. The Brits cannot win this one. Um, I, so I like that unsettled me not in the way that like oh we're watching bad guys are doing bad things uh, I'm unsettled but like there was something in there that felt off to me like it felt like they were having a miscommunication of some sort I, I think it may have been because like he was like oh uh, they want to hold a funeral and we're gonna not we're gonna continue to not let them have permits and she was like uh, what the fuck give them a permit like we have we have work to do but there was something there and like there feels like some kind of slippery terrain here and I think this communication between the two of them is going to be the weak link and I can't I don't like I don't know maybe I'm reading too much into that did you get any like did you feel that vibe in this scene am i just talking shit hmm. um i don't know but I, actually 
no, and that's not that's not me throwing you under the bus. I actually do think you're more right than not because I think just these men's instincts being wrong on what to do with this has Dedra possibly coming out in person that she might not have if they had like given her a different report or told them they had a different plan with what's going on. Um, but I think it's obvious that she's like, I can't trust these fuckers. Um, so I very much expect Dedra to be on uh, Ferrix for the finale of the season. God, I hope so. I hope they all get blown to fuck. That would be awesome. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about like the death rites or whatever you want to call this death, uh, you know, ceremony they have on Ferrix. Because what they do, and this, I don't know if this is like some kind of working class tradition from an existing society, but man, it feels working class as hell mm. that they like cremate the body and then they, you know, like work it into the ash into Mordor and they use it to basically build walls or they put the brick into a wall. Um, I don't know. It just feels very of a piece with that wall of gloves we saw in the first episode in Ferrix. Mm. Um, mm. It just feels like a way that it's something that signifies like collectivism to me, like all in all, you're another brick in the wall, I guess. Uh, but like not with not with the like kind of conformity and negative connotation of the Pink Floyd song, mm. but more so like we are all pieces of something bigger um, <laughs> and we can build it together and we're stronger together. Um, I really like it. Yeah. Um, and it also, this is kind of a tangent, but it just yells in my head because it's from A Song of Ice and Fire. But the first slave city that uh, Daenerys liberates in uh, A Storm of Swords or the third season is Astapor. It's the one where she Dracarys the bald guy. It's nice. a very cool scene and all that. Um, but in the books, uh, Jorah says this about the city, that bricks and blood built Astapor and bricks and blood her people. Um, and that's very much about the slavery that Astapor is built on. And I can kind of see the same kind of thematic through line here, but not necessarily slavery or shadow, but rather just the downtrodden working class is like these people are bricks and blood. And this is what built Ferrix mm. um, is bricks and blood. Yeah, I, I think there's something kind of interesting because it, it's this really interesting approach to death where like, I don't know, I guess like maybe it's like a Christian thing. Maybe it's a Protestant thing. I don't know. Um, I feel like. Christians tend to be not icky, but like a bit weird about dead bodies. Not like in like, it's not like they behave weirdly, but like they feel a bit like dead people. You don't really touch them. They're all disgusting. Uh, You don't want to be near them because they're spooky and haunted or whatever. And this has like a very not touchy well, it is touchy-feely like it, like they, they they cremate marva but then someone has to literally work her ashes into uh into the mortar to 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 make a brick um and and that that is really literally getting up close and personal with a dead body and and death itself and you were you, you know you've, you've got your hands all over it you're physically touching it you're working it you're turning it into something new you're turning it into something new that like sustains and and kind of you know, they're all touching and ostensibly they're all touching and, and walking around and near the bodies of the dead all the time. It's not like they've cordoned the dead off into a cemetery where, you know, you walk by them and hold your breath, I guess, um, but don't really interact with it. Like like the dead are, a, 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 ironically, a living, breathing part of of this society. And they're not it's not like they're icked out by it or anything. And I think that's quite interesting. Especially as like an approach to death in Star Wars, where like the first death we see, well, one of the first deaths we see in Star Wars, not uh, Bru and Lars, but but uh, Obi Wan is literally lacking a body. Like like he he is 
it, you know, the the holy death of the Jedi involves them becoming one with the Force and no longer having a body. And so there's like nothing to potentially be icked out by. But for like these, you know, quotidian people like Marva, these people who are just they're not, you know, holy warriors. They're just good people doing things in their lives. They become this actual part, you know, dust, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And I don't I don't know if there's anything like bigger to be said about that, but I, I, I do kind of like it because it does bring uh star wars back literally <laughs> down to earth again yeah they get to be uh smoking skeletons like uh, george <laughs> lucas uh, envisioned anyone who was a non-jedi to be uh very much like on peru and uh the other fucker Uncle Owen. yeah yeah <laughs> joel Egerton. Yeah. oh yeah he 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 tried to do something with kenobi he was not one of the weak parts of that show <laughs> poor guy um also, uh, before we uh, skip with, with all the rest of the Ferrick stuff, we do got a couple other things to talk about here. Uh, first, we get to see the time grappler again. <laughs> yeah. Um, he gets to sound the closing uh, bell. Um, assuming that all roads in the finale are leading to Ferrix, um, I imagine the time grappler is going to like time grapple some Imperial with his like time <gasps> grappling hooks oh my or God, whatever. Yes. Um, I think he's absolutely going to get a guy. Hopefully it's on his little anvil too. Like he just gets to go to town on him. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I think the other major thing happening on Ferrix is just Bix, um, because they basically take her and they basically say, Hey, is Anto Krieger the guy, um, that she like met with Cass, which is kind of an interesting thing to say. And they actually cut away before she says anything. And she might not actually say anything, Mm. um, because she's like looking very Mm. rough here and almost looks like she's collapsing as they cut away to the next scene. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is good because someone pointed out recently, I can't remember who it was, but if if it was if it was you, random listener, then thank you for this because I'm stealing your point, not crediting you. Um, But someone was like, torture doesn't get accurate intelligence out of people. Uh, You torture someone, they're just going to say whatever the fuck they need to say to stop being tortured anymore. Um, And if this show is smart enough to play with that um, and and Bix just says, yeah, he's that's Krieger. Krieger's my contact. He's the guy I was talking to just so she can stop getting tortured. And Krieger is like now triple fucked because he's got the spacey, timey, whatever the fuck uh, piece of equipment that that Luthen gave him um, and or Luthen sold him. And he's got uh, the uh, the kind of Deidre's side, Deidre's, ugh, Deidre's side of things uh, coding in on him. And then also confirmation from Bix, who's this this torture victim. This dude's triple destroyed. And as Luthen says to Saw, uh, like, the Empire will be riding high high enough that they'll ignore everything else. And and if that's the way they go, that will be fucking brilliant as well. Because uh, it really is just Cashin is just getting so lucky. And so is Luthen. And there's slightly less skill involved in this than, than Fortune and the incompetence of the enemy. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly it. I think the Empire is riding high if they foil the Krieger plot as is, Mm. but with the fake information that Bix may give them that that is who uh, has been her contact, I think that like means like, oh, not only did we snuff out this plan, but we might have snuffed out the guy Mm -hmm. as well. Um, which would be just like an incredible thing to either end the season on or to like, you know, twist in the end when they realize that's not what they accomplished at all. Um, but I think that's like an incredible win condition. But we need we need to talk about Luthen. And so oh. I think this will probably be where we uh, wrap up the episode. 
Um, because Luthen goes to Saw's hideout. Once again, I think it's Seagra Milo, I believe is the name of the planet. Yeah. And um, this time, he doesn't just get to saunter into a Saw's <laughs> cave. Like, he's actually patted down. And Lord help me, it looks like Luthen's carrying a wooden fucking lightsaber. <laughs> it's so good. Um, which, uh, who knows what that is? They, he does nothing with it during this scene or this episode at all. But they clearly wanted you... Um, to like note that, and then also the fact that is like either you know take it away from me or give it back. No, do you know right how fucking now. dumb I am? I did not process that that was meant to look like a lightsaber until right now. <laughs> I was like, is it a looking but- glass? Is it is it a telescope? <laughs> You're right. It's not Master and Commander. It's Star Wars. Ugh. <laughs> um, and basically, uh, once he's given, you know audience with saw uh saw seems to be like let's do spell house i like my blood is high so i had a really cute. good workout today let's just go fucking do some war crimes or some rebellions or some insurgencies um i really like the energy that uh forest whitaker brings here yeah. um just because i haven't seen a lot of saw Gerrera. i only seen him in rogue one and this now mm. um and he i wouldn't call him a low energy character but he's generally kind of sitting there and orating to you. Yeah. Like his previous chat with Luthen was just kind of sitting down and the two talking. Um, here he is like bustling all about. He's like going from this table to that. He's like checking this, checking that. It's like, let's fucking go. Like he honestly must have railed like four lines of cocaine before <laughs> Luthen uh, showed up because he's just got an energy I have not seen out of this character yet. <laughs> it's, it's so good as well because I think it's like um, it, the, the saw that we've seen so far is like, you're, you're right. Like he is just a fucking narrator but he's so tired and and there's part of me that always wants to so he does he shows up he showed up for the first time in the clone wars and then he shows up again in rebs um and in the clone wars and rebs they're both they're they're all trying to portray him as the evil left wing to the good rebellion um and and they do that in various ridiculous ways um but you don't even then he's not high energy and you don't really see the kind of guy who Galen Erso would risk his whole life uh, with and and who Galen Erso would risk uh, Galen and Lyra Lyra Erso would risk the, the life of their daughter with. And you don't see someone who is befitting a, a, a group called the Partisans. You just see a tired old man. And it's it's nice to see like the the guy who got the partisans together the guy who got the gang together this this freewheeling Andronian radical um who who does have this real spark of not just sort of like bloodlust but like real desire to fucking destroy the empire like he is excited about the prospect of getting to to absolutely fuck up these people and and that's like a nice thing to see because it's motivating it's like you say it's like the one day more in lame is you know what i mean he's like on the barricade uh, <laughs> swinging a red flag around and like yeah let's get it for us whitaker oh man if they do like a performance of red and black or something uh, in the finale <laughs> i will just lose my shit i love lame is yes um the fact that we already got a javert in here with cyril karn and i guess that makes Cass our Jalvan. Jean Valjean. Yeah. Oh my god. Uh, let's just keep going. Let's go in. Who is Bix? Is Bix Bix can't be Cosette. No, no way. Sh- Probably like Eponine yeah. or Fontaine. Oh god. This um, is depraved. Don't I think we're going to hell for this because this is, this yeah, is a I lot. Think- <laughs> um, so, uh, but anyways, um, this Luthen and Saw conversation, there's also um, so you know, Saw's like, well, the only way you can know that the spellhouse plot is found out is if you're ISB yourself. Or if you just got a guy on the inside and you're going to hang, what's it called, Uh, Krieger out to dry. And I like this little uh, trick that Luthen plays uh, where Luthen's like, yeah, I have a guy on the inside. His name is Tubes. He's right over here. (laughs) Um, And Tubes is like, what? What? No, I'm I'm loyal to you, Saw. And it's all just to get him close enough where he can pull his gun off of him and like say, Saw, 
chill out a little bit, you know, like smoke some weed to like balance out the cocaine <laughs> and let's like chill and let's think about this. We're playing the long game. Um, and, you know, and I think Luthen's also like he admits like, I have no idea what you're going to do, Saw. Like I have no control <laughs> over you. But here is what I'm thinking that if Krieger gives... Um, if they let Krieger go and him and his 30 men um, go down, that gives the ISB a win, like we've said. And then, But if they lose, then they'll become a little more unpredictable. They'll become unsure. They'll probably turn over or uh, figure out Luthen's source on the inside, our good friend Lonnie. Um, so eventually he's able to get them to settle down. And Saw says, for the greater good then. And Luthen's like, eh, call it what you will. <laughs> and Saw says, let's call it war, um, which I think is just a fantastic uh, little turn of phrase from there. This has the best writing of any Star Wars yep. thing. Oh, like, by far. By far. Not even close. Yeah. I'm not someone who's saying this is better than Empire or A New Hope, but it is by far the best writing yes. of anything Star Wars yes. has ever uh, seen. Yeah. Because um, there's nothing that ever feels hokey. Like, like that line could have felt mm-hmm, really hokey mm-hmm. being like, ah, oh, to war. But it doesn't. It feels like this is a character who, like, when he's saying it legitimately believes it, but also when he's saying it has the literal firepower behind him to actually mean it and to actually, like, affect for better or for worse something behind that. And, and a lot of the time in Star Wars, you get these cool lines, but it's a bit like you're being lectured at by a little green frog. And so it's a bit like, God, I'm embarrassed for myself. This, I'm not embarrassed by myself for this. <laughs> fucking rules (laughs) and speaking of fucking rules let's end this episode talking about the starfighter sequence that happens (laughs) uh, up in space uh so saw or sorry luthan is leaving segramilo and first he's having a chat with clea um and him and clea have a little comms chat that's all in kind of code where they use the trappings of like talking to other buyers about the antiques that luthan may have um, the first first they talk about Saw and about closing the deal and basically saying, OK, they got Saw to, you know, be chill about whatever. Um, and then he turns the conversation to the other piece of interest, which I think means Cass. It pretty I think it's pretty clearly mm-hmm. about Cashin. Um, and they're basically talking in code about what's happening on Ferrix. And uh, Clea's like, well, we have people there to, you know, put in a bid or whatever, but there are other interested parties, which I think is like the uh, imps will be watching it um, is, I think, kind of the vibe mm-hmm. that Clea's trying to say is like, you know, there's going to be people there. It's dangerous. Do not go to Ferrix, um to see if you can pick up Cass. Um, but what happens is that their conversation is cut off because we get our favorite Star Wars ship of all time, <sighs> the Imperial Cantwell class <laughs> uh, arrestor <laughs> cruiser, which... Uh, doing a little research before this episode, I think was originally supposed to be in Solo, oh. um, but they just were never able to get it to work. I, I don't remember Solo n- enough to remember to what scene it could possibly <laughs> have been in. Um, I remember there's that Castle Run scene, but I think that was built around a Star Destroyer, right. so I don't think it would have been the arrestor there instead of the Star Destroyer we got. But anyways, it's got an amazing design. It's got a giant tractor beam ass oh. satellite dish on front with two little satellite dishes on the side. Um, you, you'd speak about this scene because I will just start frothing at the mouth if I continue any further. It's so good, but it's also my brain just immediately went, I don't know if anybody remembers the Rainforest Cafe. That was a thing that used to exist. I do. Yeah. Do you remember the little frog logo that they had for it? The little frog mm-hmm. with the little sucker fingers? 
This is a very yes, specific part of my drained psyche. Uh, I, that ship looks like the little frog with the little suckers because it's got those little three things on it. Anyways, I'm obviously mm-hmm. overtired. Um, this scene rocks because it's traffic cops uh, getting stuck in a firefight with, uh, at best I could call him, Joseph Stalin. Even though Cash and Andor are Stalin, as we learned last week. Um, this is like, they. these are like provincial fucking traffic cops, road jockeys who are just like, we're going to do a routine stop on this guy because we're bored and we got to make quota. And then the guy that they stop is armed to the teeth with the coolest ship we've ever seen. Uh, and also he's going to kill them and not feel shit about it. And there's this great moment as well where, where the show acknowledges it. Because they're like, Luthen opens up his ship's ass and like sends out a whole bunch of these little missiles. And it fucks up the, the main tractor beam satellite dish. Um, and one of the guys in the bridge of the uh, the ship, the ship goes, from a Hallcraft? And like, I don't know what the fuck a Hallcraft is. I have no idea what a Hallcraft is. But the like deranged, panicked shock of that line delivery is like, oh my God, from a Hallcraft. It's the, it's the vine, the, oh my God. And they were roommates. Oh my God, they were roommates. That's what it is. It's that level of the tone tells you everything you need to know. You don't need to know anything else, but you know, it's horrifying that they were roommates. It's so horrifying that these guys got owned by a Hallcraft. And, and, and just watching the kind of, again, the show and its mastery of time and tension, watching the little dial go, all right, we're going to watch the, what is it? The counter countermeasures, activating countermeasures, watching that thing turn and just being like, oh my God, are we going to make this in time? Is Luthen going to be fine? He Does he have enough time even if the tractor beam is pulling him in to haul ass to the back and get his little way on and do his little handshake thing to get him into the right mood? Like the, we, you know, the show has made, uh, time the enemy of the the viewer in a lot of ways to quote the weird guy heart whatever version of Tarkin and um, <laughs> there's so much tension in this scene and and also so many little bits of this is genius brilliant writing that they're using in pursuit not again of building up a wikipedia page but in pursuit of building up a really great little bit of scene work yeah oh my god you just like set up like 80 different alarm bells in my head with the various things you said there <laughs> um first of all calling them traffic cops just reminds me how annoyed I get in Mando and possibly Boba Fett Ugh, when the X-Wing pilots show no. up to be traffic cops. So fucking um, awful. I mean, it probably tells you something worthwhile about neoliberalism yeah. that they did that, but it also is just frustrating to see in Star Wars. Like, in my opinion, Star Wars is allowed to just have the X-Wings always be cool. Yes. And the fact that they're being used to be traffic cops just really kind of gets my goat, no matter how cute those scenes are. Yep. Um, But the other thing I was thinking about is you mentioned like kind of the Poe dreadnought scene from (laughs) The Last Jedi um, where he's like, you know, I'll hold for Hux or whatever. There's a little bit of that comedic vibe here as well, where Luthen is kind of trying to play nice guys like, oh, of course, I'll comply with all the things like all the time he needs to basically, you know, get all his weapons charged and his light speed calculations and all that. But he's playing very affable and not like a pirate or whatever. Yeah. Um, and then the thing you were saying about, you know, the Hallcraft has those weapons kind of <laughs> things. Um, that's a great bit of like world building. It reminds me a lot of the line from Empire Strikes Back with Captain Nita after like the Falcon buzzes the tower there as well. Um, and then like it disappears off their radar and Nita just says, no ship that small has a cloaking yes. device. Like it, like it's not explaining something to us. It's it's almost dialogue that assumes we know, but in that dialogue, we learn that oh, only large ships have cloaking devices or something like that. Yep. In a similar way, 
no Hallcraft, we now know, would have countermeasures <laughs> like this. And um, it also kind of tickled me because countermeasures is a big feature of the movie The Hunt for Red October, yeah. a submarine movie, oh my God, which is the call. very first time I saw Stellan Skarsgård in anything, <laughs> um, which I think might be very, um, I don't I don't know if that's the point, but I feel like I connected those things right away because mm. um, the only thing you can do in a submarine movie is launch a torpedo or launch countermeasures. Mm-hmm. Um so I think that um, was all just brilliant, brilliant stuff. I, I love all the little details. Um, I like that he's faking to be an Elderanian ship. Yes. Because um, that's what his fake transponder ID is for. And then I think the part that I think I really loved is that his clearance checks out. Um, it's an older code, sir, but it checks out kind of thing. <laughs> but um, the troops, uh, Officer Elk, by the way, I totally caught that his name was Elk, which is really funny. Uh, he says, yeah, let's just bring him in regardless. We can use the practice. Like the traffic cops need to bully people every now and get then, which just makes me think of American police um, because they basically is like, well, that guy's taillight is kind of dim. We can use the practice of stopping and harassing our you know, local people of color. Um, it is very much just part and parcel with the kind of police approach. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really like that detail that they realize that his ID and his insurance are all in good order, but they're still going to try and bust him on whatever they can. Yes. Yes. Because that's it. These guys are all fucking bored. They're part of the most evil thing to have ever existed in the world. They're obviously all committed to being evil because they're there. Um, but they're on the shit. They're on the shit tour. They're bored. There's nothing to do. Um, and like, oh, there's a little bit of partisan activity, but there isn't really. These guys are doing donuts in space. Um, and, 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 and so like the boredom breeds stupid shit to do. And they almost had him. But this dude is just better and cooler. And and I think this also like the coolness of this and also the muted coolness, because this is objectively a cool scene. Um, and and it is possibly one of the least interesting parts of the show, the episode to me, which is not to say it's not interesting. It's super interesting. But the rest of the show just is so like turbocharged that I'm like, wow, a lightsaber ship. Um, but I also want to go back to my favorite extra grind, which is they showed us this in the trailer they showed us this lightsaber ship in the trailer and we like maybe maybe not we maybe i'm being a little over generalizing there i've been waiting the entire season to see this lightsaber ship um because i love cool ships cool spaceships that is my whole thing call me fox Mulder. um but like i've been waiting for it and 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 they showed us something that happens in literally the second to last episode and if you think back on all of the different trailers that we've seen for <clears throat> certain other shows um and and how cagey they've been about things like spoilers and and how weird they've been about not showing things and not letting you know that cool things are coming because the cool thing would ruin the plot or whatever this thing straight up whipped out its lightsaber ship in the trailer and Everyone forgot about it because everything else about this show was so much cooler. And when it showed up, it's not like it was a letdown. It was still fucking banging. But it was just not the like centerpiece that that like it would have been in a lesser show. And I think the fact that the show has the like confidence and strength to whip out a literal lightsaber spaceship in the middle of an action sequence and use it against the empire and for that to not even be not even rank in the coolest moments of the show is such like a testament to to just the the quality and 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 the caliber of work that's being done here yeah uh absolutely i think if it was like a mcu trailer or at least back when the mcu cared about the mcu like before the infinity war endgame stuff Mm. they would have probably rendered a different ship doing the lightsaber thing so you wouldn't actually know what ship it is um i think this show has been 
like maybe someone did a trailer breakdown. I don't read trailer breakdowns no. of Andor um, and like pointed out, oh, this looks a lot like uh, Luthen's Fondor after the first couple episodes. But they've also been pretty clear to like not give us a great look at the Fondor. Actually, that's not true. We've seen it up close many times, especially when uh, Luthen and Val were talking in episode four. Yeah. Um, but like, I like that they didn't feel the need to sit on it. And I'm going to possibly get every Star Wars fan mad and also probably contradict myself here after I just said <laughs> X-Wings always need to be cool. But like those kind of things, those are the things that take Star Wars from great to the what's it called? Stratosphere for me. But those aren't the things that make Star Wars great. Yes. An X-Wing or a lightsaber or a cool alien or a cool droid, they can't make bad stuff good to me. For some people, that's enough. Some people can see black Kazakhstan. Okay, that sounds like a slur when I say it like that. Uh, Some people can see black Karsten show up in Boba Fett and be like, cool, I'm happy. That's all I needed. That's all I wanted to see. And I'm happy. You know, I got a cool new Wookiee alien. But to me, like, I don't care that there's no blasters in the show, that there's no lightsabers, that there's no aliens. Like every couple of weeks in our little chats, people are like, I do kind of wish there were more droids or aliens. And I'm like, No, not at all. I would not change a fucking thing about this. Those are like aesthetic flourishes that can occasionally come and be more important parts of the story. But this story is about the people involved and the people in the context of Empire and Rebellion. So the fact that a lightsaber ship, a fucking lightsaber (laughs) ship can be in this episode and absolutely rules and it'll probably be like the fifth thing I remember from this yep. episode. Yeah. Like there are lines of dialogue I'm going to remember from this episode that I'm not going to, that are going to outpace the lightsaber ship. I'm going to remember that line from Edie that I don't even understand about <laughs> the mystery of the vanquished or whatever the fuck she was saying to Cyril. I have no, I have no idea what that lines means, but I'm going to remember that much longer than I will the lightsaber ship. And the lightsaber ship was super cool. Yes. It was so dope. Yes. Like I loved it. Like every aspect of it. Yeah. And I think that's the thing, right? Like, I, I think, um, and maybe this is controversial. No, it isn't controversial. I'm fucking correct. Um, a new hope for me, right? Like, maybe there are pe- there are more lots of people. It was the number one biggest toy selling movie of all time. But when I was like six years old and I watched A New Hope, I liked A New Hope because I loved when Luke stood out in the sunset and looked at the suns and was like, God, my life sucks ass. And I was six years old. I had not had a hard day in my life, but I was like, man, I resemble that. And and that that swell of music and and before he gets the lightsaber before he gets to space that is the moment that sold star wars to me and that is the moment that i will always come back to and and that really is at its core what star wars is and like yeah okay it's nice that they've got laser swords and it's nice that like they've got ships that go really fast and it's cool that they've got aliens but but star wars for me will always be that feeling the 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 kind of emotional crescendo of the the binary sunset of, of the twin suns um and i think everything for that like you say is just kind of additional bits that are cool like the x-wings right i love the x-wings i will always love the x-wings but i don't really care like you could take the x-wings you could digitally remove all of the x-wings from star wars uh, a new hope that is um and and it would still be just as meaningful to me because because of those kind of smaller character moments and i think the more star wars like yes it is true that star wars was able to continue to to produce itself uh, and, and was able to become as big as it was because it sold a million and one toys a trillion toys but like the more star wars becomes obsessed with selling merch um the less good it becomes like i love this show this is this is easily the one of the best things uh, best star wars things i've ever seen I don't own any merch from it. I'm probably never going to buy any merch from it. I haven't even seen any merch from it. And that is like, 
there is no like literal like material as in plastic kind of um, element to this. There's no mimetic. They're not trying to get songs in your head. They're not trying to like have things like little iconic symbols that you will always be able to paint on a wall and be like, oh, that's the rebellion. This is a, this is a show that, that, that is it's a show for adults. It's about doing a quality thing. It's about capturing that kind of magic of being able to feel things through the magic of storytelling, i.e. binary sunset or uh, Cash and looking over at the sunset and knowing that uh, his his mom is dead and and feeling that and feeling that kind of connection to other people and, and connection to humanity. And, and the more Star Wars gets back to that, the better it is. And the further away Star Wars gets to that, uh, the less I want to pay money to see it. Yeah, no, I agree with every word of it. I mean, the best moment of Return of the Jedi is literally when Luke turns off his lightsaber yes, yes. and they return to dialogue. It's not when he puts it on. Uh, the best moment of Empire is the I'm your father stuff, mm -hmm. or if not that, like some of the Han and Leia stuff, just yep. it's when people are interacting. But yep. um, all that said, I feel like for Christmas, if I can, I'm going to try to get you a Dedramero Funko Pop yeah. uh, just so you can <laughs> say you have a piece of uh, swag from the show. <laughs> Um, I really hope they have like a Dedro Cyril like double Funko Pop oh set that I can get you. Um, maybe a triple set if they have Edie as well. I know you would oh love the God, Edie one. Edie, my wife. You can my put favorite. it on your workstation. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Uh, is there anything else we want to say about this episode? Oh, I got one. I got one. <laughs> the dead speak, and by the dead, I mean Nemix Manifesto. Oh, <laughs> no, I'm gonna cry. Oh, it was so yeah, good. So uh, so back in Niamos, when uh, Cass picks up his stash, um, he's going through his money. He's going through his guns, which is what else do you need in life? Um, what else you need in life is clearly a manifesto. And when he like opens the cover, it starts speaking. And we only hear tyranny requires, but like it's in Nemec's voice. And I just got like a jolt of energy that rushed through my body when that happened. It was it was so good. I also I uh, who someone Gawker, I think it was Gawker ran no, it was Defector, ran a piece that was like, uh, Andor is the best fucking thing uh on TV. Um and one of the kind of ending bits of of that piece, uh, which was on the whole really great, I, I agreed with all of it, was like there was a moment in the show, um and and it's funny because the two of us are totally owned for this. Um, but uh the, the author was like, there was a moment in the show where after the Aldani heist and after Cashin gets handed Nemec's manifesto, they could have opened the next uh episode with having a a, a kind of uh, a narration of either Nemec or Cashin reading the manifesto and going through a montage of all of the different scenes showing how Nemec's manifesto relates to the real world, to the world that, that Cashin inhabits. And that would be the moment that Cashin would have his point of radicalization and he would go to Luthen and he would be like, eh, I'm ready to become a Jedi now, or I'm ready to become a rebel now. And, and the restraint that that, that the show showed and not having that is actually its greatest strength. Um, I'm owned in particular because I wanted that real bad. Uh, and the 1989 French Revolution movie uh, actually does a bit where they read the the Declaration of the Rights of Man while all of the like little French peasants or whatever are looking up at an indeterminate point in the sky. And every single time I watch it, I'm like, fuck yes. Um, but the, the point is, like, you know, they only do a little flash tyranny requires of Nemec and that's it. And it's just a reminder that Cashin's got this manifesto and he's kept it and, and there is some connection to it. And that's all they needed to do. And, and it's the restraint in showing that and and it, it's the kind of um, willingness to acknowledge that this is something people people might be like uh, frothing at the mouth to hear, but to not give into that because it's not the point and it's a distraction from the wider point of the show that I think is really the thing that I appreciate it, it is not trying to give me what I want. It is trying to show me what I should really want. 
And I think at the same time, it's like now that Cass has gone through his experience in the prison at Narkina 5, it's like the words of the manifesto are going to start speaking louder to him yeah. in a way. Um, so I think it's a very, very clever way to include it. Also, that thing you were talking about, the French Revolution movie from the late 80s, um, that reminds me of the ending of episode two of John Adams, where they yes! read the Declaration of Independence yes. to all the people of Philadelphia. Um if I'm in the right state of mind, when we come around to our July Patreon episode, I might just make us watch that episode and talk about oh it God, for oh yeah. uh, the patrons, because I, I love that show, despite how much I hate the Founding Fathers. <laughs> um, I think it did a really good job. Oh, yeah. um, and that episode, too, about the Declaration of Independence is one of my favorite TV episodes yeah, of all masterful time. Masterful stuff. Um, masterful stuff. All right. So before we sign off today, we would like to thank our patrons with their Middle Earth names. Just a reminder, if you are a patron at patreon.com slash my bro, my cat, my pod, Emily will assign you a Middle Earth name, either through Patreon messages or our Discord. Um, our $5 patrons will have their names read in rotating order on the podcast, and our $10 patrons will be shout out every time. And that includes Johnny Flores Jr., a.k.a. Lotherman of Palenque. Ed the Revelator, Silent Spider, Guardian of Carathungal. Haley Glyphs, a.k.a. Ewilendele. Matthew Abbott, a.k.a. Aranmo Minyatar. Matthew Hugh, a.k.a. Idrenor of Kol Kurtad. Sal Quandil, a.k.a. Cam Lewis. And Lequimelme, Le yeah. a.k.a. Zach Newman. Way. <laughs> And for the $5 patrons, we'd like to thank Evan, a.k.a. Ananor of Glen Emmon. And Ariel Scotton, a.k.a. Reveliel of Erebost. That closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is mybrothermycaptainmypodcast at gmail.com and mybromycapmypod on Twitter. You can support this podcast by subscribing to patreon.com slash mybromycatmypod, where you'll get access to special bonus content, a Middle-Earth name like we just read off, as well as Patreon-exclusive episodes. Anyways, I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You can find me covering A Song of Ice and Fire over at Nauticast ASOIAF. And I've been Emily, also known as J.R.R. Tweedin, which is where you can find me on Twitter, where I will be dropping pizos in Niamos with Comrade Melshi. <laughs> Saying Sigrona Tima to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. Ithraglir Andrithion, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. So please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. Until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king. And for the $5 Patreons, we'd like... Damn it, every fucking time I say Patreons. Ugh.